the marriage seminar is coming up uh, February the 11th. Uh, I was listening to Focus on the Family, and I heard the field hands speaking, and it was new stuff that I had not heard before. And so I came into the office, and I said to Lisa Mooney, our Faith at Home director, I said, hey, could, let's just take a stab in the dark and see if they're available in February. She said, do you realize how close it is to February? And I said, yes, but let's just find out. And uh, so she reached out to them. They responded and said, it just so happens that we're traveling through on that particular, on the way to another event on Saturday night, we were looking for a place on the way and you're right square in the middle, right where you are. And I said, amen to that. Thank you, God, for that. And so we're bringing them in. I'm hoping that you will sign up for it if you're married or thinking about getting married. Okay. And so, um, in fact, I've got a couple of the books here. Uh, highly Happy Marriages. This is what they'll be basing on. It's a brand new book they just came out with. Uh, the Little Things That Make big uh, make a Big Difference. And uh, I'm going to give these copies away. First, I saw down here on the first row a couple that's getting married in just a few months. Cody coming at you. Be ready to catch. That's a good book. If you can't read it, get her to read it to you. And uh, no pictures in that one. I'm sorry. But that, that'll be okay. I'm just curious. Uh, is there anyone in here who has been married 50 years? Anybody been married 50 years? All right, 51 years? 52 years? 52? 53? 54? 54 back here? 55? 55, right? 55 sold. All right. Ken and Sherry Schaefer, looks like you're the winner of this book back here. Somebody mind running this back to them? You mind running that back to them? Awesome. They're in the very back row back there. Good, solid Baptist back there. So that's awesome. <clears throat> Need to find out if they both agreed to sit in the back row or if it was one in the marriage that kind of pushed that way. But anyway, we're looking forward to a great time to be, to be with them as Shante comes and shares the, the information in that book is, is phenomenal. It's new stuff. I've been married 30 years and um, just... Uh, new stuff that, that I was able to apply instantly, and uh, it was just, just good things. So I'm hoping that you'll sign up for it. Uh, we did have some issues with our sign-ups a couple weeks ago, so if you tried to sign up and it didn't seem to work, we've got those fixed too, so go sign up. We, we want you to be here. It's a free night for you to be and come. Uh, we'll provide food, provide child care. We just want you to be a part of that, so we're looking forward to that. Well, today we're in Genesis chapter 11. We are not going to do another message on the Tower of Babel, although there are a few more there to be had. Uh, we're going to move on into the generations and uh, finish out chapter 11 today as we kind of move forward with that. This is Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to go uh, verses 10 through 32. And I believe we'll be able to cover these and pull out some of the truths of what's there, but then to focus in on what is the main truth I feel God wants us to hear today. So let's uh, dive in as we uh, read through this. It's Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. It says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered... Let me... I practiced this this morning. Now I'm going to have to stop. Arpachshad. There we go. Two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. 
When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. It keeps saying other sons and daughters to show you that the generations are growing, that the world is populating. Verse 18, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg, Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. <clears throat> when Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug of which the word Serug or the name Serug means branch. So that's another way of showing that there's branches of the family that's going out, kind of like the branches of a family tree. His, his name means branch. And Ryu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. Terah means station, by the way, and that's going to mean something in just a moment, which is an interesting play off of the name. It means station, kind of setting a station. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. Abram means exalted father. He uh, fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And now what we're going to do is we're going to change the objective lens on the microscope and look a little bit closer at one of the lines. Verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcai and Hishkah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. You say, why would he say that there? Because it's setting us up for what's to come. Um, and we'll talk about that at another time. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So you've got Genesis chapters 1 through 9, which are basically taking us from Adam to Noah, and then you've got chapters 10 and 11 that are taking us Noah to Abraham. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel. It's a story of blessing, and it's a story of cursing. The Old Testament closes about 400 years before Christ comes, before the New Testament kicks in. We call that the silent era. So the Old Testament history uh, and, and the New Testament, there's about 400-year gap there. The focus on Shem in chapter 10 uh, just shows us the various people groups that were going out. Remember when we talked about chapter 10, we talked about that Shem stayed around the area, his whole line stayed around the area of the promised land. Within that, you know, when you're looking at the whole globe, they stayed in that particular area that they didn't branch out further. Um, they kind of stayed in that area. Chapter 11, though, kind of narrows it down, and it gives us what we would call the line of election, the chosen line the line that takes us down 
to Christ. And that's why it's important to read through these and know the names and know where it's going, because we can learn a lot about the, the line, we can learn about the names and what they mean, and we can learn about the years that are in there to give an accounting of where things are. And so Shem goes directly to Abraham, who was the father of Israel. And Abraham, next to Jesus, is one of the most important names in the Bible when it comes to our redemption. And so we will be learning that as we move on through Genesis. And so you see throughout Genesis a record of the story of paganism versus promise. The paganism started back at Adam and Eve, right? They were worshiping God, walking with God, communing with God, having a relationship with God, enters Satan into the picture, brings confusion, and they decide to go outside and disobey God, to take it upon themselves to do what they wanted to do because they felt they knew a little bit better. It breaks the communion, it breaks the fellowship, and the worship that was happening of the creator of the universe. And so anything that breaks the worship of the creator of the universe can be considered paganism. Now, I'm not saying 100% is. I'm saying it can be considered paganism. And you and I are constantly coping with and dealing with and battling with what is taking our focus off of our creator, not only in here as we sit here, but in, out in the world too. There are things that constantly want to pull us away from worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The scripture teaches us that we're supposed to have a humble heart, that we're supposed to have a humility. And and I'm going to read a scripture text to you that helps me remember that. This is Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I don't know if you caught or not, but every one of those phrases that I just read were in quotations because every one of those phrases in the book of Romans comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament had already showed, shown us and, and talked to us, and then the New Testament reiterates it, that we are basically wicked at the very core of our hearts. We're, we're not holy, by the way. It's Christ who presents us as holy before the Father. It's not us. And so we need to stop making life about us and make it about Christ. And that's kind of the focus of what's what's going on here. And you're going to see this as as we move on. So the story of mankind is kind of a story of rebellion, a story of paganism, a story of coming against the obedience to God. There are several things that I want to point out about this scripture text in Genesis that I think will help us kind of frame around where God's taking us today. So if I may, I want to give you four points that we need to clarify as we're talking about this text. Number one, at the Tower of Babel, when God came down and confused the language, God did not abolish the pagan culture. That's something we tend to forget. We think he came down, confused the language, and then everyone was like, 
oh, let's go worship God more. That's not what Scripture teaches us. He just came down and confused the language to further his cause, to set it up for the coming of Christ. Knowing this helps us understand that Abram's family, this is key, Abram's family were pagans. A lot of his family members were pagan. You think about Abram and his, and his family, and you probably think, well, he came from, you know, he had a dad that was, you know, probably very worshipful of God, and it just kind of led him in that way. No. Abram, who when he became Abraham, had actually risen above the walk of his family. So we need to kind of remember that. They probably worshiped the gods, especially Abram's family, probably worshiped the gods of astrology, a, 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 and a kind of a god system that had been made up during the Tower of Babel. If you have questions about where I'm getting this from, just come to me, I'll talk to you about it, because I don't have time to give you every single reference that's out there. The worship of the moon god was probably what Abram's family was involved in because the moon god cult flourished in Mesopotamia, and that's where Abram is from. And so we kind of know that that's probably uh, what drove his family. So, number one, at the Tower of Babel, God did not abolish the pagan culture, and so that's kind of what you're working with here. Number two, keep in mind that this, this was written just before the nation of Israel was moving into the promised land. So as they're hearing this, as they're hearing the reading of this accounting of the generations, they're hearing this right before they go back into the promised land and take over Canaan, which had been promised to them from the time of Abraham. So they're hearing this reading, and they're being reminded, this is where we came from, this is the God's call, and that we're moving forward on this. I think we need to kind of keep that in mind as you kind of pull into why was the scripture text written? Because when they were either reading this themselves or listening to this, they would have immediately known these generations because they were closer to it. To us, we read it and go, yeah, I think I might just skip that section. It's got a lot of names in there, can't pronounce. What's it really matter? To them, they would have went, oh, that's, that's this, that's this. They would have followed the line. They would have understood kind of what was going on that. It reminds us and it reminded them that God is sovereign and he is controlling everything. Now, if, you do, if you're a historian and you get into this kind of stuff and you, you read these names and you read Genesis from that particular standpoint, you can't come away from it and not know that God is sovereign and that he's controlling everything. That's what you get when you study the scripture text because God is always proving himself out through his word. So that's the first two things. The, second, the third thing is this. These lives and this generation are overlapping. I found this intriguing because I had always read this growing up as, well, this guy had a son and then he died and then this guy, had, and it just like it was like one after the other. But when you go back and you put the numbers, which I didn't do, somebody else did it for me, right? So I got on as I was studying and you put the ages and the numbers beside each other, these lives overlapped one another. If you put the numbers together, Terah was 128 years old when Noah died. I had never thought about that, that Terah would have known Noah. I always thought that, well, this is a further generation down the road, and he's looking into history and everything. No, he would have known Noah. So Noah was alive for 128 years of Terah's life. He had a firsthand eyewitness from someone who had survived the flood. In fact, Noah died probably two years before Abram was born. 
That's how these lives are overlapping. So kind of want to kind of give you an idea of how this works. It's a closer, tight-knit than you think it is. You go Adam to Noah, Noah to Shem, Shem to Peleg, Peleg to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Judah, Judah to Jesse, Jesse to David, David to Solomon, to Hezekiah, Josiah, Joseph, and Jesus. That's the line. You can go back through and follow those. I can send that to you later. I know you weren't really kind of trekking with me. My point was you can follow the generation of promise all the way down to Jesus, just like was prophesied it would happen. So these lives were overlapping. Interesting thing to know. Number four, Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel. But God was actually setting things up for him to become the father of the nation of Israel before Abraham came along. These are some things that kind of popped out at me as I was reading through this. I want to just kind of go over these. Verse 16 says, When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Eber means the region beyond. Now, Eber was alive at the Tower of Babel. If you go back to the text before, in chapter 10, verse 25, it says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. It's talking about the Tower of Babel was when it was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And uh, Peleg means division. So you know that Eber and Peleg uh, were at the Tower of Babel, and that's where the Hebrew nation comes from. In fact, we get the word Hebrew from the name Eber. So when you go back to the Tower of Babel and you learn that the Tower of Babel came down, the languages were confused, and people kind of got where, with people they could understand, and they began to disperse around the world, that languages now that were different had to be recorded, and Eber, the father of the Hebrew language, uh, was there, and you, so you can track the Hebrew nation back to Eber and Peleg. I just thought that was interesting to know as you kind of go through this. So the importance of this passage is the line that leads to Abram, who becomes Abraham. You see this, uh, you may have question about why do I think that this line was paganistic? Well, when you go to Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, you see what's said of this. It says this, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. We'll see that in just a moment in a map, but that's talking about Abraham and Terah and his family. Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him to Isaac. See the connection there? That's how you know that when uh, Abram was being called to go to the land of Canaan, which we'll see in just a moment, um, that he was actually living among pagans. Perhaps he was pagan himself, but he heard God's voice in the calling. 
So in spite of the flood, in spite of the fact that the entire world had been destroyed and there was a starting over, a hundred years later, you find a family line and many who had created new gods because of the wickedness of the heart that I told you about in Romans chapter three. We at nature, our hearts are bent away from God. We just need to acknowledge that, that we have to pull our hearts into check. You know, there was a season, it's not so much now, but there was a season in the population and the generations that said, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. You know what's wrong with that statement? It is exactly opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, tell your heart what it should be doing. You shouldn't just follow your heart. You should tell your heart what it should be feeling. Your heart is misleading. Your heart will take you down a path of destruction if you allow it. Your heart is fickle. My heart is fickle. Uh, I might feel one way one day and feel another way the next day. Right? And, And so I need to tell my heart what it's supposed to be feeling. So in spite of what the flood, in spite of the eyewitness testimony that had happened because of the survivors of the flood were still around, there were pagan beliefs, which in a way blows my mind. But you think about it, every time there's been a major disaster in our nation, for about a week or two, everyone's all on board, the churches fill up, people are coming in during the week wanting prayer, and then about three weeks later, that kind of starts settling down. People start getting back into their scurrying around and everything, and then we forget. Because we're not bent toward what we should be bent toward. We're bent toward listening to our heart and what's convenient for us. And God has a certain standard and framework that he says, I want you to stay within. I know you won't be able to stay within. That's why I'm providing Christ to make a way for you. But that doesn't excuse you. You need to try to work him. So that brings us to what I think God's focus for us is today. That was a lot of background. Thank you for being patient. Hope you were able to trek with me. But this brings us to what I think God, one, is saying to me in this text, and two, I think wants to say to all of us. It's in Genesis 11, verses 31 and 32. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. What I want to do is I want to just take just a second and show you that particular area. And I'm going to bring a map up that is actually of um, today's land, of that particular area. And I'm going to show you where these areas are on the map. So if we can put that on the screen Maybe it's showing, maybe it's not. Let me make sure everything's fired up on here. Maybe that's it. There we go. That's running. And anything? Nothing? Not firing off like it should? Yay. Whew. There we go. 
I was fixing to say, that'd be a good time for the fire alarm to go off. <laughs> just kind of like, just clean this up for us. All right, so what I want to do is, this is a modern day map of this particular area, but I wanted to show you the land that, that is existing right there. The land of Ur of the Chaldeans would have been in this area right here. And this, is it not live? Or are you just showing just the map? Okay, there we go. So the iPad's not working. We'll get that going for the second service. Sorry. So... Down here where you see Kuwait, that is where you are, uh, the land of Ur of the Chaldeans is. If you go straight across to Jordan, that's the land of Canaan. But if you go up to where you see the red dot, the red little marker on the map, that is the land of Haran. And so what I want you to understand is, is that they were called to go to the land of Canaan, which was straight across, but why would they go up? Well, if you see the little lakes that are kind of going up toward the land of Haran, that follows the Euphrates River. And so the Euphrates River is kind of going along that way. In fact, if you bring up a, a live map of the Kuwait area today and you zoom out, you'll see that the green plush area follows the Euphrates River up toward Haran or Syria and then back down to Jordan. So straight across from Kuwait to where Canaan would have been was desert. And you're talking about moving a whole entourage of a family. So it makes perfect sense that they would have gone up that way and cut down to the land of Canaan. It's very interesting, though, because I did a little bit of study on the calling. Because I thought, why did Terah go? Terah was from the land of Ur, the land of Chaldeans. And it's very clear that uh, later it says that God called Abram to go to the land of Canaan. I personally believe that you can find out what's going on here in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. This is uh, when Stephen is being challenged by the priest, and he says this, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So Mesopotamia, the land of Ur, was down in Kuwait area. So when he was still there, God appeared to him before, it says, before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. Talking about the promised land, the Canaan area, Jordan, Bethlehem, all of that in that particular area. So you see that while uh, Abram was living with his family in the land of Ur, that God appeared to him and said, I want you to go to Canaan. He was called the exalted father. I imagine that Terah probably respected Abram. And when Abram said, God told me to go, maybe Terah said, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, let's pick up everybody and let's all go. And then when he got to the land of Haran, now we're, we're unclear, was it already called Haran or did Terah name it Haran because his son had died? That's, that's, they do that often. They would name a particular area. But here's what we found that was very interesting. In the land of Haran, for history and years and years and years, there have been the worship 
of the moon gods. Many commentary writers will say this when you're reading about this particular section. They will say this, that Terah picked up his family and began to move to Canaan. And when he reached the land of Haran, he found familiarity amongst the people because of who they worshipped. It wasn't the true God, but they found familiarity and comfort came to him. And it was probably a plush land. And so he decided to settle there. In fact, that's really kind of what the scripture text is saying is that he settled there. Sarah, I mean, Terah seems to have heard the call of Jehovah. It seems like he did because he picked up his whole family. He just didn't say, Abram, you take your family and you go. We're going to stay here. He went also. He bowed to it. He obeyed it. He proceeded to some length in the right way. He wanted to go in the right direction, just as many who hear the gospel want to do. Many who hear the gospel, maybe even respond to the gospel, kind of give it a kind of a reverential respect, admit that there's divinity in it, that it is excellent. People can be even moved by the gospel. They enter on a course of obedience to it. They start walking toward it. They feel that their sin is wrong. They want their sin to be made right. And they're desirous of holiness. So they do things like they, they don't drink or swear or they, they don't break the Sabbath or they become more outwardly moral. Um, they attend public worship, support religious things, and they even maybe even unite with the church And all of that is in the right direction, but it's only halfway there. And here's what I feel God's saying to us today. I am afraid that many Christians today are only halfway to the relationship with Christ because you view it as a religion and not a relationship. A relationship with Christ equals a changed heart a heart that comes in line in a step of obedience of who he says we should be. And we choose to follow him not out of duty, but out of love. And there are many people who are trying to do right based on what religion says, but stumbling over themselves every single day because the relationship with Christ is still not there. It's still broken. It's still less than. And our relationship with Christ is where it is. It's what we have to lean into. And because of that, Terah gets mentioned in seven verses in the Old Testament. And Abraham gets the rest of the Old Testament. Do you hear what Scripture's saying to us is that if we only make it halfway to a relationship with Christ, we're going to miss the mark on what God created us to experience in this life to begin with. Could it be that your prayers seem to be bouncing off of the ceiling because your relationship with Christ is not where it needs to be? We need to figure out what is it in our lives that's preventing us from having the 100% relationship with Christ that we should have, and we need to rid ourselves of that. 
whether it's pride, whether it is lustfulness, whether it, whatever, you just name it, whatever it is that is preventing us from having the right relationship with Christ that we need to have, we need to rid ourselves of that. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 speak to this that it's a heart change. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you say, well, the will of God is a bit of a mystery. The will of God is is kind of hard to tell. It's really not. The reason the will of God is a mystery is because we've possibly Americanized it. The will of God is very clear in his scripture. And I'm going to put a list up on the screen for you of things that you need to be working toward. And I'm going to give you a scripture reference that goes with each of those and talk to them just a little bit about how we work toward a changed heart in our relationship with Christ. And this is what we all should be doing as a people, not just showing up on Sunday, you know, I went to church, check, I tithe, check, uh, I served in the nursery, check, check. Okay, so, uh, you know, and then kind of move on through the week and say, I hope the week works okay. Because our walk with Christ is to be a daily walk with Christ. He says himself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. It's a, it's a daily thing, it's a daily walk. Let me just say this. I know from my own life that when I'm seeking these steps, I feel closer to God. And when I'm not seeking these steps, I do not. So that's kind of where we're going. Number one, the first thing a person needs to do is surrender. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Surrender. It is, it is a total surrender. What is it in your life you're not willing to surrender? It's not just a kind of half surrender. You know what surrender means? It means both hands up saying, I give up. I can't do it. Surrender is I'm turning everything over to you. Last night at 5 a.m., apparently this is the weekend of batteries going bad in alarm systems, my security alarm in my house went off at 5 a.m. And that's happened before because sometimes we let the dog out, we forget the alarm is on and it goes off and everything. And so at 5 a.m., I hear the alarm going off and I'm kind of waking up and I see the clock, it says 5 a.m. And then my wife says, the alarm's going off and I went, oh, you're here. That's not cool. I was hoping it was you that set the alarm off. Now I've got to go investigate, right? Um, didn't take me very long to stand up and start going down the steps, find out what was going on. Turned out it was just a battery in the system, and I thought, there's a flaw in that design, by the way. Shouldn't it just go beep, right? It shouldn't wake you up out of a deep sleep at 5 a.m. going, someone's coming in! <laughs> but had I engaged someone down there, I would have not expected them to go, um, Hey, I surrender. (laughs) Halfway surrender is not it. I mean, I'm going down the steps thinking that if I see anything moving, um, I'm going to have to really think hard on what's going on here. (laughs) 
right? So this is not a halfway, the halfway surrender is not surrendering. That's not surrendering at all. Do you understand that our walk with Christ designs total surrender? It demands total surrender. We have to be willing to surrender everything to Christ. Our thoughts, our, our bodies, our emotions, our, our spirit, our social life. Everything has to be surrendered to him. It's a total surrender on a daily basis. That's the first thing. Second thing is this, is a willingness to sacrifice Luke 14.33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's not kind of confusing words there. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's that's not confusing words. And here's, here's what I want you to think about. If you're not sacrificing something because of your walk with Christ, you better check your walk with Christ. It demands sacrifice. He said count the cost. If you're going to follow me, count the cost. Be serious about following me. Don't just halfway do this. Sacrifice. So a person needs to surrender, needs to sacrifice. Next, needs to listen. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We need to be willing to listen on a daily basis, hourly basis, sometimes minute by minute, a willingness to listen to his voice. So we surrender, we sacrifice, we listen, which leads us into abiding in him. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Abiding in him walking with him, but do you see the order of this? You can't abide in Christ if you're not listening to him. You can't abide in Christ if you're not willing to sacrifice for him, and you can't abide in Christ if you haven't surrendered everything to him. And then number five, obeys. Luke chapter five says this, and he said to him, follow me, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This is talking about Matthew when he had everything to lose and Jesus said, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. He obeyed. You can only obey well if you're abiding and you can only abide if you're listening and you can only listen if you're willing to sacrifice and surrender. Number six, lights. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At your darkest moment, when you're walking with Christ, you still have light. Number seven, loves. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can love better if you're showing his light. And you can show his light when you're obeying him. And you can obey him when you are abiding in his word. And when you're abiding in his word, you can hear his voice. And when you hear his voice, you'll be more willing to sacrifice and surrender. Number eight, serves. 
followers of Jesus are servants. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant, my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Serving others, putting others first, serving in some way. It follows love. Number nine, shares. Followers of Jesus are fishers of men. Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I can't read that without thinking about one time when I was, we were driving out to the coast and we went across a bridge. You know, you have the inlet waterway there and you're going across the bridge and you could see down there and there were these, a whole bunch of people down there fishing. And uh, one of my daughters said, hey, look, a bunch of fishers. I thought, I have never heard that expression before. She said, well, isn't that what the Bible says? Fishers of men? I was like, okay, there you go. You got me on that one. But you're sharing. You're not going to be willing to share the love of Christ with others if you're not in a servant's mindset. And you're not going to be in a servant's mindset if you don't have love. And you're not going to really feel love if you're not walking in the light. And you're not going to walk in the light unless you're obeying Christ. And you're not going to obey Christ unless you're abiding in his word. And you're not going to abide in his word unless you're listening to his voice and willing to sacrifice and surrender. And then finally, 10 reproduces. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We are a church that is seeking to make disciples who make disciples. But we can't make disciples if we ourselves are not going to be a disciple. And these 10 things that you see on the screen, surrender, sacrifice, listens, abides, obeys, lights, loves, serves, shares, and reproduces is the evidence of a disciple of Christ. And so the scripture text Ask us today, do we want to follow in the footsteps of Terah, who settled halfway there and then died? Or in the footsteps of Abram, who became Abraham and fulfilled the promises of God? Are you experiencing Christ? Do you feel him in, in your presence? Do you see him working in the yuck that's around us? Do you see him working in the situations that you have? Apply these things and seek today to become a disciple of Christ. Let's pray. Father, your goodness, your greatness, your mercies, your love, are rich and challenging. And even though it's an Old Testament scripture, it sings to us today in a way that teaches us who we're to be before you. Help us to be all in. Help us to not be halfway people. Help us to be 100% in following you and growing in you and walking with you under your grace, under your mercy, under your love and your righteousness. Give us your wisdom. Give us your courage. Give us your love. For in Jesus' name we pray.